sauce. Kevin here. Matt, please tell me something. Well, we just talked to Jake Roper, and one of the things that he told us was that he got a new house. That's awesome. But I think he might have made a mistake because he could have built a house out of urine. Out of urine? Build a house out of a liquid? Yeah. No, 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 no. Out of bricks made from pee. Uh, <laughs> pea bricks. Yeah, pea bricks. He could have lived in a pea mansion. Uh, researchers at, at the University of Cape Town in South Africa have taken urine from uh, men's bathrooms and then it had a system that mixes that urine with lime. And then that lime mixture is processed eventually into bricks, which smell for a few days. But after those two or three days, they can be made in place of limestone uh, to build. So the fourth little piggy, did he make a house out of pea bricks that the big bad wolf cannot blow down? Yeah, he did. It took a while. Uh, so something like 28 liters of urine eventually result in one brick. So, And you can make gunpowder out of urine, too. I know yeah. they, they did this during the Civil War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, at one point, oh, I forget where it was. There were urine collectors that you would put it all outside of your house and somebody would come around at night with a night, wagon. Night soil. Yeah. Night that's soil right. collectors. And the, the, the night yep. soil was actually just excrement. Yeah, the, all the nitrogen-heavy stuff would go mixed uh, in with peat and things like that. And that would be boiled and distilled down uh, to get the nitrate and the nitre needed to, to make gunpowder. Well, speaking of gunpowder, Jake Roper from Vsauce3 just released a show called Could You Survive the Movies Mad Max, where he actually blew things up. I mean, they did three different explosions for that show and detailed the science behind it. And that's what Vsauce 3 is all about. It's about exploring fictional worlds and explaining the science behind these things. And I know that well, because I've worked with him for years, obviously. So uh, why don't you tell me your perspective on the person that is Jake Rope? So listening to the two of you talk uh, about, about the whole process was really fascinating because you came together years ago uh, and have very different paths. Jake's Jake's story is, is really incredible because he details how he took on one project after another, different industries from music to uh, commercial stuff to advertising, eventually science and space-based projects that resulted in Vsauce 3. And along the way, he's taking, uh, taking pieces from each, each gig and finding out what he, he doesn't like, finding out what he really likes. And then the next the next project, he's that much better at it and he's doing something a lot closer to what he wants. And now he's looking at movies, which he loves, analyzing them to a high degree and figuring out, can you survive in some post-apocalyptic world like Mad Max? And he's got the science behind it. He's got the cinematography behind it. He's telling a great story with it. And as we listen to the to the interview, it, it really becomes clear how he took little elements of all of these things and it's coming together in, in a project like can you survive the movie yeah and even going so far as sleeping in a closet for a couple of years which we get into we also get into his weird obsessions with things like tacos of which he has taco shirts taco shoes is always talking about taco bell and nicholas cage and his pillows there, there's a lot there there's a lot there i've always wanted to unpack and I finally got to put him on the spot and explain where all of that strangeness comes from. So you're about to hear that. You're about to hear the taco devouring lovely voice of Jake Roper from Vsauce 3 
because you are about to enter the great unknown. All right, Jake Roper, listen, let's talk about your Vsauce origins, your origin story, how you became, so you were bit by a radioactive Vsauce anthropomorphic <laughs> blob of slime. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, that that caused you to start making science videos on YouTube, essentially. I've never heard you refer to yourself as an anthropomorphic blob of slime. That's uh, <laughs> That's actually a good descriptor for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so I bit you back in what, 2012? 2012, yeah, what a time. 2012, yeah. What a time. <laughs> well, we were all working in New York at the Next New Network's office that was then turned into the Next Lab. Yeah, YouTube Next Lab. So at that point, Michael was doing Vsauce. He'd signed you on, Kevin, right? Yeah. And you were making a show, and then you guys bump into jake at the water cooler is that how it goes yeah at the uh at the at the pineapple machine because <laughs> hey, jake is okay. obsessed with eating pineapple <laughs> let's just let's just clarify there wasn't a machine that gave out pineapple that would be too good to be true what they did have was a giant bowl of pineapple and uh the the craft service people always knew that that was for me and to this day you still have your own craft service people that, <laughs> that hand feed you chunks of pineapple daily pretty much I mean, you know, our yeah, <laughs> I can't, I can't deny that actually. But this is this is only like sort of a joke. You do literally <laughs> eat pineapple every single day. Yeah, pineapple is my favorite fruit. Breakfast, it's just a bowl of pineapple, and that's it. That's all I eat in the morning. Because there's a few reasons. One, pineapple's delicious. Um, and also two, I, I find that if I'm like full in the morning, that I don't, I'm not productive. I, I tend to operate a lot better and think more quickly when I'm slowly starving to death. So I prefer to be in that kind of way. If I have to do something like a podcast or I have to do an interview or a meeting, I like to starve myself or even be on camera. Because I, I don't know. I get slow if I eat. Is there a way to quickly starve to death? Yeah, probably. I would imagine if you exercise a lot and don't eat. Oh, you just burning up all that energy. Yeah. Not replacing it and uh, just collapsing into a, a pile of, of roper. Pile of roper. <laughs> That's going to be my sitcom when I have like, it's Jake in a house with like 20 kids. They're all my kids, just to clarify. They're not like random kids. They're all 20 kids with the same mother. That's it must be a tired, tired wife that you maybe have. you know what? Maybe I just adopt a lot of kids because there's so many kids without homes. Kevin, <laughs> <laughs> this is this is yeah. a, a, there's really nothing strange <laughs> at all about like, you know, a, a youngish youngish single man, you know, a, like unmarried man, just like adopting children by the the busload. Unless you're Professor X and you're training them <laughs> <laughs> to harness their super powers for good and not evil. I'm just training them to harness their powers to cut pineapple for me. <laughs> <laughs> so there's always a ready supply. Anyway, so what were we talking about? Uh, how how I became part of Vsauce? Was that the original question? Yeah. How did how did you become part of Vsauce, Jake? Well, the good news is I know that I know the story from Kevin now because I used to have my own interpretation, but now I'm going to blend mine and yours together. So it's very succinct, very clear, very truthful. Um, basically, I, was, I got hired to work at YouTube in 2011, like middle of 2011, to work on this platform or this new, I guess it was their first YouTube channel that they like had created themselves. And it was called YouTube Space Lab. And it was really cool. It was this whole initiative where kids uh, across the United States, um, and I think the globe actually, 
could submit experiments that would then potentially be done on the International Space Station. And my role was to create to create content for that channel um, to keep people engaged and also keep it going until the contest was over. So I started doing that. And I was mainly just like a channel manager, a producer, an editor, a shooter, kind of a jack of all trades, which is what you need to be now on the Internet. And I, I was doing that for a while and I kept bugging Kevin because Kevin was a very approachable guy. Really? <laughs> you just sitting. No, you were ta- sitting in the back. <laughs> you're just like laughing hysterically as you say those words. Why am I unapproachable? Uh, well, Uh, Well, because you were like, oh, I'm Kevin Lieber. I have a beanie on and I sit in the back. (laughs) It's dark here. Um, Like you were just in this like cubicle all by yourself in the back. Whereas like I was up towards the front sitting like like Michael Stevens sat next to me. Um, So I would like bug you and I'd be like, hey, like, how do I start getting into making videos for you guys? Stuff like that. And you're like, well, you got to host things. So I was like, cool. So I did that. And I started hosting a show called Space which was literally just a space, so it's impossible to search for, but I thought it was clever. Uh, so I did that show for a while, and then Space Lab started to kind of end, and Michael would be on Space Lab too, um, and I gave the channel off to Scientific American, and then kind of made a concerted effort to do what turned out to be Vsauce 3. And when Vsauce 3 launched, there was actually three hosts. There was Kevin, who did like video game WTFs, uh, and I think that's the the show that you did. That was the only one you did, right? Yeah, yeah. So d- video game WTFs was a show just showing off a lot of glitches and bugs in games, just kind of like wacky clips, which if there were a show like that today, nobody would watch because that's just kind of what the internet is. But uh, back then it was, you know, you're aggregating all of these funny glitch videos. This was before even really Let's Plays were a thing and 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 talking and making fun of video games was really pretty new. Yeah, because it was just like your voiceover underneath funny glitches from video games. Mm-hmm. So then there was this guy Joey, who was doing what we called headshots, where the kind of like more in depth uh, science explainer videos about fictional things. And like his first one was how how much is a Mario coin worth, I believe. And then I was doing a show called Apple Night, which was a spinoff kind of of Up All Night, which was a show that Michael used to do on Vsauce 1. And that show was just a curational thing about cool apps that you get for your Android or iPhone or at the time Windows phone device. And that's kind of how it started. Then I'm still going to say this, even though Kevin has a real reason. Joey fell, fell off the face of the earth. Uh, <laughs> rest in peace, Joey. We miss you. Uh, Kevin got really busy with Vsauce 2. And then I just kind of had to start making content for the channel. So then I took over Headshot which is now just all I do on the channel. And then uh, what else did I do? Oh, there was like Game Loot and Dong moved to to Vsauce 3. I still did App All Night. And then there was also a show I created called Fact Surgery, which was like a stop motion series. But all those have either gone away or gone to the Dong channel. And now I just do Headshot. Okay, so the real reason that um, Joey stopped <laughs> doing videos is not that he fell off a cliff. It's that he got a promotion at his full-time job where he was a chemist. Okay, that's a, that's a valid that's a valid path. Yeah, I it? mean he decided like okay, be this important chemist person instead of a full-time YouTuber and and that was the decision that led him to not be on Vsauce 3 anymore. And then yeah. Jake full-time I took imagine over the that he had put some, you know, kind of modicum of of effort to get to that point. I think for Joey it was a it was a really fun hobby. He's a super super smart guy. Uh, a literal scientist and a huge video game nerd. So, I mean, that was why I initially approached him for 
Vsauce 3 because it was like, okay, this is a perfect blend of, uh, yeah. you know, smarts and also passion. Um, but then the old, uh, you know, I guess chemistry side of him was like, <laughs> I guess I'll stick with this giant company. I think it was like Cree light bulbs or something where he worked. Oh, yeah. This is a big yeah, opportunity. Yeah, yeah. So he okay. had a great job doing that. So long live Joey. Long live Joey. Yeah, this... This podcast is about me. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No yeah. more. So, no so we just we kept the, the first letter, the J, and just changed the, the next three from uh, O E Y to A K E, and uh, never looked back. Yeah, none the wiser. But yeah, I, it, so that's kind of how it happened. There's one thing that I've learned in my life: it's to make yourself invaluable at whatever job you're at, so they can't replace you. So one thing I was doing, because Space Lab was always going to be temporary, so I also helped manage the YouTube space, like the physical space that they had in New York. And then I also was helping Michael with Vsauce 1, primarily just editing Dong episodes for him. Because he, like, he asked me to be the channel manager for Vsauce, and I kind of was like, I'd rather just like have a Vsauce channel <laughs> instead of managing one. Like If I'm going to manage it, I'd rather be my own. And that's kind of what I did. Like So when Joey left, when Kevin stopped doing Vsauce 3, he was like, hey, great, how can I make myself just this really important part of the channel so it can just be mine and it doesn't need to rely on other people to be on it to exist. And, and the way that you got there, I find really fascinating because of how early you started working kind of ridiculously hard. Um, didn't you have a job at 18? Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so when I was 18... When I was 18, I started working at a Pitchfork as a uh, intern. I was the second intern hired, and there was only, like, there was two interns, myself, this other guy, and then, like, two people working there. And we were basically in charge of filming and editing every single piece of content. Um, and even there, like, I really liked it because I was really into music at the time. Um, I mean, I still am, but, like, I had a huge thing for music. Like, I always wanted to be a musician. Actually, fun story that most people don't know. When I was uh, 17 years old, I used to fly out, like, every other week when I was in high school to LA to play concerts. And that was really fun. What did you, what was the music? What did you, what did you play? I don't know anything about yeah, that. Yeah. So when I was in high school, like everyone has a high school band and I was in a band uh, called the Hools, like ghouls without a G. We actually, we did pretty well for like a high school band. Wait, we were, why, 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 why does, why the Hools like ghouls? What does that mean? Uh, so we had a friend name whose last name was Houlihan and we always would call him the Hool. And we thought that the Hools was pretty good. Because, like, this is the time when the band names were always really popular. Like, The White Stripes, The Strokes, The Shins. So we're like, we want to be a the band. And we were just like, let's just come up with something stupid that doesn't make any sense. So we called ourselves The Hools. And, like, our logo is just his face. And he was very upset did about you have it. Any, <laughs> did you have any band? songs about him? No, he wasn't in the band. He had no connection to it. He was just our friend. But also we thought it was funny because he really wanted to be in the CIA. He wanted to be a ghost. So by putting his face on T-shirts, he was like, no, I can't be a ghost. Everyone sees my face and knows my name. And he was very upset because we, we ruined his career in the CIA when he was like 16. Wait, um, OK, stop. Where is Hool now? Did he go to work for law enforcement or the government or anything? He's a lawyer in New York. Oh, OK. Yeah, he went to like Columbia and became a lawyer. And here we are. He's married. He has a nice labradoodle. Um, <laughs> we need to do an offshoot podcast that's titled like... Uh, uh, Joey and the Hool, where we just get <laughs> these people. Who See, doesn't Joey and the Hool? That even sounds like a band name. That's great. I wonder if he named his dog, I Hate Jake Roper, because he <laughs> ruined my career <laughs> in the CIA. 
probably. <laughs> so yeah, I was in this band. We we did pretty well. We would like open, or not open. We would like headline shows, and we it was really cool because I was like sixteen, and we'd have to pick bands to open for us, which is pretty neat. So I did that, and I was like the band manager. And then we had a girl in the band named Corey. Corey's super talented, and she just like went on this road trip to New Orleans to New Orleans. Let me say it like that to New Orleans. And she just happened to meet Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. Um, and as you she, do, like, pl- as you do. Right. Well, she was like at a coffee shop across from Nothing Records. His record label used to be in New Orleans. <laughs> New Orleans. Why do I keep saying that? <laughs> anyway, so she like slid a note under the door and was like, "Hey, like I love your stuff. I'd really like to play a song for you." And he was like, "Yeah, sure." So she came and like played an acoustic set for him, and he like loved it. So she moved out to LA when she was like sixteen or seventeen. And started working with him and Atticus Ross on music. And then she just started playing gigs out there. And I would like fly out uh, like every other week to L.A. and like play concerts at like the Whiskey A Go-Go or like the Viper Room, stuff like that. And it would just be her and myself, her on guitar, me on drums. And we'd just be like playing these shows at like 17 years old. And it was pretty cool. Did you ever meet Trent Reznor? Yeah. Yeah, he was nice. Um, that was the thing that made me like really excited because like Trent would be in the audience, like other bands like Icarus Line and stuff would be there and they'd always... So like, oh, your drumming's pretty good. And be like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. That's like the nicest thing I've ever heard in my life. So I wanted to do music. So my plan was to get into CalArts and then like study film there and then also do music. So I remember like I would go out to LA and like crazy like, oh, I found this like house for us. Like, here's your room, blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, sweet. And then I didn't get into CalArts. <laughs> it was the only college I didn't get into. And I still wanted to go to college. I didn't want to basically have to put my entire future in the hands of my friend Corey. So I was like, okay, I'm going to have to put the music to the side for a bit and go to New York where I got into college. And that, that ended my music career. Parents didn't mind any of this at such a young age, just flying to L.A. to play clubs? No, they thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think that I would have had that same, that same experience. Well, it was like, so for me, I think they just knew how excited I was about it. And like my teachers and stuff were all really chill with it because I had to like miss school for a few days every couple of weeks. But I just remember the first show we played was at the Whiskey A Go-Go, you know, right on, what is it, it's on Sunset. And, like, we didn't have a drum set, and we couldn't afford to rent a drum set. So we, like, hit up some connects, and the drum set I played on for the very first show was Jimmy Eat World's drum set. And it had just come from TRL, back when TRL was, like, actually important. So, like, it showed up at the venue, and it still had all the TRL stickers on it and everything and, like, all that stuff. And I was like, this is so cool, I'm playing, like, Jimmy Eat World's drum set. For the show at the Whiskey Go-Go, I'm 17. Did you did the did you sniff the drum set to to get a whiff of Carson Daly? <laughs> it was you didn't even have to like smell that hard. It was just everywhere. <laughs> I was like, oh, is that sandalwood and jasmine? <laughs> is that what Carson Daly smells like? <laughs> That's what I assume. Either that or they just coat their drums in sandalwood and jasmine. You just kind of gently caress the snare and you, you haven't <laughs> washed those hands since, have you? Mm-mm. No, they're very dirty, these hands. Uh, so yeah, anyway, so there was the whole music thing. So when I had the opportunity to work at Pitchfork, I was like, heck yeah. And in between that, I had done music videos for bands. Tell me when to stop talking about Talk, it. Talking is the point of the podcast. <laughs> oh, so this is, yeah, podcast this is. is what we're doing. <laughs> oh, we're okay. talking. I'm confused. Yeah, no, um, we will be shooting hoops later and then there will be <laughs> like some sort of bake off. But for now, we'll stick to talking. You know, okay. Speaking of bake offs and things that reminds me of just like picnics. I really like cornhole. Uh, I love cornhole. Do, do you? The game? <laughs> yeah kevin the game cornholing is great actually talk about just came out with a cornhole set that i really want to get for my yard anyway so 
Uh, when I was 18, I really wanted to make music videos because I still loved music. And uh, I just reached out to a bunch of labels that I liked. Like there was one that I really liked called Asthmatic Kitty, which was Sufjan Stevens' label. But they didn't respond to me. So instead I went to their sister labels that were much smaller. And I just emailed them. And like I was in Colorado at the point, at this point, still living there. And uh, one of them responded back like, oh, hey, our artist is actually going to be there next week. You can have an hour with him. We can't pay you anything. And I was like, great. Doesn't matter. So I filmed a music video in my dad's basement with this guy named Bizart. And then like it did really well and they really liked it. Then like Asthmatic Kitty reached out and I started making music videos for them. And I'm actually on their Asthmatic Kitty volume one DVD that like you could buy at Best Buy and stuff. And I thought that was really cool. Um, So I did all that stuff. And then I'm in college now uh, and I started working at Pitchfork. I worked at Pitchfork for a year and a half and I like because again, I want to make myself invaluable. So I would like sleep there. I remember sleeping on toilet paper rolls in the middle of the office and it was like on 38th and 8th. Uh, Sleeping on toilet paper rolls like as a pillow or you made a mattress out of toilet paper <laughs> no, rolls? No, it's as a pillow. <laughs> okay. It was just like carpet floor, toilet paper rolls as pillows. Because I would just like sit there and like wait. To, and I wasn't getting paid anything. I think I got paid like basically a hundred bucks a week is how much I made. And, you know, living in New York is expensive. But luckily I lived in a closet for three or four years and the closet only cost me 300 bucks so I had a hundred dollars extra every month to like spend on food. How big is this closet? It was about eight by eight. If I remember eight feet by eight feet. And then like it had a skylight that never opened, but never was actually fully closed. So if it rained, it would just like drip on my face while I was sleeping. Um, <laughs> it's a nice so that was perk. fun. Yeah. This is like, it's like a prison cell, but somehow worse. Yeah. With, with Chinese water torture. In- <laughs> <laughs> right. Which maybe, you know, I'm into, but it was dope. Cause like I lived in this apartment in Brooklyn and it was right next to the M train, like one of the above ground trains. And it was so loud. And like, you'd hear it every 15 minutes go by. And I just lived in a closet. And it'd be like the kind of thing, like the stereotypical, ah, in your apartment, where like, train goes by, the glasses shake on the wall. Uh, and then like, everyone's fine and you can talk again. So that's where I lived for about, I lived in that apartment for like six years. Anyway, so I worked at Pitchfork. You lived in the closet for six years? No, I lived in the closet for three or four. And then one of the, then I like had a job that I could actually like afford a better rent. And one of my roommates moved out who had a big room, and I moved into his big room for like two years. Did somebody move into the closet? Yes. A man who I found at a bar. Oh. <laughs> a man who you found at a bar? Yeah, I was just at this bar that was around the corner uh, getting dinner. because. And you, you said, know, hello, and... would you like to live in my closet? <laughs> well, he was, he, was, <laughs> he, was a, he was like my age. He was alone there, too. He just had moved to Brooklyn. He didn't know many people. And we were kind of talking because I had a PlayStation 3. And he had an Xbox. Um, and I was like, an Xbox 360. And he was like, oh, dude, there's this one game. I think it was like Dead Rising or something that I really wanted to play. And I couldn't because it wasn't, ex- it was exclusive to Xbox. So he like came over the next day and brought over his Xbox and we played Dead Rising. And that's when he was like, oh, you know, like I'm only in this place for like another month. And I was like, oh, sweet. I got this closet that's open. He was like, yeah, dude. And I was like, great. This sounds like a To Catch a Predator episode. Like, <laughs> I want to make sure no one else does this. Like, was- please don't do what Jake did and like lure somebody into your closet with the, the hopes of playing video games. Yeah. No, this is like some blend of, of to catch a predator and like forensic files. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know how no one was murdered in this situation. <laughs> and I, I want to know who lives in that closet right now, because there's almost certainly somebody who occupies that closet at this moment. Definitely. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the, the neighborhood's gotten really fancy. That that apartment's a lot more expensive now. So that closet 
is probably at least $600 a month. So we've got Joey, the Hool, and, and the Closet Dweller. <laughs> we have so many questions. Maybe that's the name of the album. <laughs> oh, closet Dweller. <laughs> uh, so anyway, yeah. So sorry, long story short, I worked at Pitchfork for a year and a half um, doing that stuff. But basically what, what the, the crux of the story is, is that you just continually took every opportunity that you could, uh, made the most of it, until a new one came along and then you did it all over again, essentially, right? Yeah, because I, I strongly believe that the time of working for one company for your entire life is over. And the only way that you can actually grow and do more um, is if you move on. You know, you can't just make lateral moves. So with Pitchfork, I worked there for a year and a half and I remember like I got offered another job at this television network called Plum TV. And I really still wanted to work at Pitchfork because I, I loved the environment. I loved being able to go to concerts for free every night. And uh, they were just like, we can't afford to pay you anything. Like, we can keep paying you 100 bucks a week or you can just quit. And I was like, okay, well, I see that my value isn't really appreciated here. Uh, or maybe it was and I just overvalue myself. So I just left and I went to Plum TV as a producer and editor and worked there for two years or so. And through Plum TV, that's how you ended up in YouTube? In the YouTube office? So I started working at Plum TV. And what was interesting about Plum TV was mainly like young, talented people working there. They were the producers. They were the shooters, the editors. Um, and we made content for wealthy individuals that lived in like Plum TV aired in the Hamptons, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, Sun Valley, Miami Beach, Aspen, Vale, places like that. So like a, a high end lifestyle network. Is that right? Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. Um, and so I was working there. And that's also how I met. A bunch of interesting people like Casey Neistat was doing work for them. He would just make kind of like short videos that they would air during commercial breaks. So I met him at Plum TV. And I also met people like Supermarché, which is like Henry Juice, who ended up making catfish and stuff like that. Um, and then one of the guys I met was this British man named Tim Fernara. And Tim Fernara, for you older European folks, was in a band called Worlds Apart, which was basically the European version of Backstreet Boys. They were massive. So he was like in Worlds Apart, this boy band, and he came to America to start being an actor and a host. He also used to be Colin Farrell's uh, body double uh, for shoots and movies. So he was hosting a show called Film Insider that I produced and, and directed and edited. Um, and that was like aired on Fox and stuff like that. And from there, that's how then I got into working at YouTube because he was friends with one of the heads of the next lab as it was called at the time. So I'd met them previously. And then when it got acquired by YouTube, they reached out to me like, Hey, we met you. We know you're a producer. Do you want to work on this stuff? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I just want to go back to the fact that rich people have their own channel that, that I've never, you know, us, us normal folk no, uh, don't have access to. You and wouldn't be interested in watching this. You wouldn't want to, you wouldn't understand it. Even if it was on your TV. What it's just not shows? for you, Kevin. It's just not for you. Mm. But what do they need to see? Well, like, so Plum TV is just such an interesting concept. Like, they did everything really weird. I remember I, I convinced them to let me go to South by Southwest to film, like, a five-minute art piece, basically. Like, it's on my Vimeo if you ever want to search for it. Um, it's, like, 24 hours at SXSW. And, like, they hated it. They're like, oh, we, this is terrible. But anyway... Uh, so Plum TV doesn't exist anymore. It went bankrupt. As, as they like adjust their monocle <laughs> and like. <laughs> well, they did weird things. Like, they were like, you know what we should do? This is like 2010, maybe. They were like, let's start a print magazine. And so they created a whole entire print magazine that was like massive and like really beautiful and expensive. But it was a print magazine. 
when everyone was trying to leave print. But it was it's so Tom Scott's the guy who founded it, not Tom Scott, the YouTuber, a different Tom Scott, who also is the guy who founded Nantucket Nectars, the beverage company. Oh, and then cool. he sold that. His wife is the person who created J. Crew, I think. Um, so wow. they created Plum TV. And then also like Tom Scott is also the guy who like helped create Casey Neistat's HBO show, the short lived HBO show. And it all came from Plum, basically. So that was the thing that I liked about it is there's all these interesting people. But the kind of shows that they made, one that I directed uh, was called Beyond the Boardroom with Jonathan Tish. And Jonathan Tish is the CEO of Lowe's Hotels. And it would be like he was actually like a lovely man. Like he was very nice to me. And his um, VP was like all they were all super nice to me. And I was like this 20, 21 year old kid who would just like come to their headquarters and like film with them. But we would do interviews with CEOs. So the CEO of Panera, the, the CEO of like the New York Stock Exchange. We filmed an episode actually with the the current president. So we just did like all this stuff, just interviewing other CEOs. And it was like a 30 minute business show. You know, I would watch that. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't see why you have to live in the Hamptons to want to be interested in that. You know, it's such a different climate now, too, because now there are shows that that really do highlight, uh, you know, people who lead companies, uh, the development of those. They want to hear the backstories. They want to hear about how they live. There seems to be an interest like a general interest in that now that maybe they didn't realize at the time was of general interest. Yeah. I mean, CNBC's entire programming now is based upon business. Yeah. And with shows like the profit, uh, billion dollar buyers club or whatever shark tank, obviously. Yeah. So well, I mean, 10 those, years ago, who knows? And also it was the thing like the show was interesting because it aired on plum, but it also aired, I think a few seasons aired on Fox business and then a few seasons aired on Bloomberg. So you could see it outside oh, of cool. the, the locations that we aired it. Mm-hmm. But that was fun. Like, you know, we got nominated, or I think we won like a local Emmy or something. Um, and I'm like, you know, a 20, 20 year old kid and I get to like direct stuff. It wasn't exactly what I wanted to make, but I was still like in charge of people. And that's actually when I first started working with Eric Langley, who does all the VFX for Vsauce. Because we went to school together and I basically was put in charge of the entire production facility at Plum, New York. And I was like 21 at this point. So I hired Eric to do all the graphics and stuff for Plum. And do you think that having that experience working in more traditional media led to your passion for kind of combining YouTube with the production values of a traditional media outlet? Um, I think I would say not really. What, what working in traditional media allowed for me to understand was how terrible it was for me. Obviously, some people like it. That's why there's people that work in it. But it wasn't what I wanted to do. I didn't like being. I didn't I didn't like having all these strings attached to the things that I made. I wanted to make exactly what I want to make and not really have to hear from anyone else. So like after Plum, so like after Plum, I freelanced for about a year or two and I started doing advertising work. So I worked with this like ad agencies like um, Ogilvy and Mother and uh, Strawberry Frog, like these big ad, ad agencies in New York and would do commercials for like. Coke and Jim Beam and Pampers and Coors Light. Um, and that's kind of what I did for a while. But even that, because I thought that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to make commercials. But, you know, when you're working in advertising, yes, I'm the director of it. But the creative director and like the assistant creative director come up with the idea. The copywriter comes up with the words that are being said. The art director decides how it's actually going to look. And then I'm just there to like call action and make sure people are in the right place. It still wasn't my idea. It still wasn't like really my vision. And then when you get to the edit, great, you edit it. But then... Everyone has notes. Client has notes. The ad agency has notes. And it turns into something other than what you envisioned. And that was very frustrating to me. 
Do you think that that process, having so many cooks in the kitchen, turns out a product that's lesser than something that would have been um, better had it been kind of spearheaded by one creative vision? I think so. And that's kind of this weird double-edged sword when it comes to content creation in, in that world, is that if you have a lot of money, you're going to have less freedom. If you have less money, you're going to have more freedom. And you kind of have to decide what you want. Like, you need to exist. You need to live. So sometimes you do things that are more money, but your soul gets sucked out of your body. And then you do things that don't make as much money, but they're creative. And you can use that maybe. Like, if something really, really hits well, then you can use that as your calling card. And that was always kind of my interpretation of how to operate. So there's this pattern that kind of emerges from from your path through all of this. and where you're at now too you know you've talked in your own videos and on your personal channel about uh, about the newer project but it seems like you you have a great blend of flexibility and and planning so you do something for a reason you know as you as you talked about uh each of those jobs uh internships all of this there's a clear purpose for you doing it and then you realize a little bit more about what you like what you don't like and the next thing that that you go to incorporates what what you know and after this huge succession uh, of kind of just grinding, right? You've gotten to a place where you have a really clear sense of what you're great at, what you're not, what you want to do, what you don't want to do. And it seems like you've put that into the current projects, right? Yeah. Well, I, I'm just a big believer in that you never know what you want until you know what you don't. So like you need to experience everything to figure out what works, what doesn't, what makes you feel good, what makes you feel bad, what like excites you and what doesn't excite you. So I always try to do everything just to see what it's like. Cause you never know. Like I didn't think that I'd be making YouTube videos, especially being on camera, making YouTube videos. That was never my intention, but it just fell into that. Cause it felt right. So what do you really like about what you do now that you did not expect at all. You never saw this coming. Uh, Michael and Kevin <laughs> are the things that I like the most. <laughs> And you, Tabor. Thank you. Um, Thank are the you. things that I like the most. No, I think what I like is that I, I get to create whatever I want is what really excites me. And I have the resources, albeit, you know, not infinite to do that. And that's very exciting to me because one thing that I always love is making something with nothing. I think it's like the best thing that you can do. You know, like there used to be a time before we had Eric here full time being camera operator and stuff where if I want to do a camera move, well, I just like jerry rig some rubber bands and string to the tripod so i could do like a whip pan and i'd use the the rubber bands to help absorb you know some of the the force from that so it like would actually be smooth and would stop on me um but like oh cool like that little move makes it feel like there's more production value it's like little tricks like that i think are really important or maybe i have a light great we were using like these really nice lights because we're at the youtube space i would have the dimmer next to my foot so i could like push my foot to dim the light and then bring it back up so like the episode would start with the light coming on me. And it's like, oh, cool. I just did that by having it attached to my foot, like gaffer tape it to my foot so I can actually do that stuff. Um, so that's always fun to me. They're kind of like uh, Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins where he has like the drum and <laughs> like a horn. And he's got like all of these things. What does he have? Castanets and yeah. <laughs> uh, like cymbals attached to him. And you're just walking around the park basically uh, singing a song for imaginary cartoon friends in the least believable cockney accent ever <laughs> ever recorded before you and your friends cleaning some chimneys <laughs> hey man cleaning yeah. chimneys was good money back in the day really bad for your lungs but 
You got to make a dime. Right. Well, I'm, yeah. You make a dime until you die of lung cancer at 27. I think, I think it was making a sixpence. A sixpence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> making a farthing. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. What else? What else? What else you got? <laughs> what are we talking about? Where am I? We're talking about could you survive the movies? Because that's really what the journey of all of this has lately, you know, culminated in is you making this tremendously beautiful show on YouTube that I don't think anybody ever would have thought was possible there's really just a couple like years it. ago even yeah there's nothing that that I've seen uh, and sorry to jump in when I guess the creator of this show could weigh <laughs> in if we let him uh but no see you know sometimes you see something and you're like oh like this is a genre that's developing like this is going in the right direction something really cool is going to pop here I, I didn't really see anything like that uh before Jake's show hit and when that came out uh, which everybody needs to see this. It's incredible in terms of, you know, the cinematic quality. Just it, this is amazing. It, nobody did anything like this. This is completely brand new. Oh, well, thank you very much. That's very nice of you. If there was a video component, you'd see that I'm smiling now. Uh, but the viewer at home, just imagine me smiling. It's as terrifying as what's in your head. We can yeah. hear it. We can hear your <laughs> your cheek muscles. <laughs> They're so strong. Um yeah, I mean, that was, to me, a long time coming. Like, I, I've always wanted to, and this is a fear that I have, and I don't know if you guys feel this way in your creative endeavors, but I don't think I'll ever be satisfied with anything that I ever do. So for me, it's always, whatever I make, the thing I make after it needs to be better in some regard. Better doesn't necessarily mean, oh, it's bigger, it has more money behind it. It just needs to be better. What that means, I don't know. I just It's like a feeling that I have when I make content. Um, which is one of the reasons why I, I take so long to make stuff because it really needs to be something I'm exciting about, excited about and something that's different to me. And that's, you know, I, I, I always think about like, why do I make science movies is what I consider them in my head, you know? And I think it's, it's that it's just the topic, but the genre, I can make anything. So it can be like an action movie or it can be a horror film. It can be a romantic comedy if I want it to be, as long as the through line is information and education. And that to me is exciting because it never gets boring. Even though I'm always making science movies, the way that they feel, the way that they look is different. And that's kind of what I love. So when it came to Could You Survive the Movies, it really was I wanted to, to make, to your point, Matt, I wanted to make something that was different, that didn't exist yet. Because when I would talk to production companies about making a TV show, they'd always be like, oh, cool. So like we imagine it like Mythbusters, but more science. Or we imagine it like Survivor Man, but you survive using science. It's like, okay, you're, you're just naming other shows that already exist. Let's create a show that doesn't exist. So then when other people try and make shows, they're like, let's make it like, could you survive the movies? That's what I want to do. I want to make things that don't exist yet, or at least adjust it enough where it feels new and exciting. So how does, can you give like a tagline for Vsauce 3 and a tagline for can you survive the movies and then connect the two? Like how does, how does, how, how did one get to the other? Um, a tagline, I don't really, I don't know how you know, like succinct I can make it. I mean, I think it's. Vsauce 3 has always been, the more comfortable I got with running this channel, the more comfortable I got just making it what I wanted to make it. And it's always been, I want to explain fictional things cinematically. I want it to feel like you're on an adventure. That you're, you know, that's why on all of our channels we talk directly to the camera as if it's a human being, because it is. So for me it was very important to bridge that with Could You Try The Movies, where like you, the viewer, are there with me, we're going on an adventure, we're on a journey together. And by the end of it, hopefully we'll learn something. But if anything, I just want you to be excited and have fun. Um, and that's just really important to me. Because like one thing that's always 
because I've always loved movies. And I always remember when I was a little kid watching horror films were my favorite because they would make you feel scared. They could make you feel excited. They could make you feel happy. They could make you feel sad. And you feel all these emotions in such a short amount of time, like an hour and a half. And I love the fact that some person was able to control my emotions to such a degree because you're not just like walking down the street crying, but in a movie theater, maybe you, maybe you like, aren't, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, the first 10 minutes of up, you're crying by the first 10 minutes. Like, that's the kind of effect that films can have on you. And I love that emotional kind of it's like a manipulation, but it's it's done in a very interesting and curious way. And I, I wanted to be able to give that to people in my own way. If I do that, I don't know. But I I think it's important to create an experience for the viewer. So it's really about connecting at the end of the day with as many people as possible, I think. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always thought, and this is a conversation I have all the time where, you know, I think a lot of our value on YouTube is determined by views. And I don't find that to be accurate. And I don't want that to be what my value is determined by. I want it to be by the effect that my content has on people. You know, I was talking to my friend uh, Casey Neistat last week, and we were kind of talking about what we want to do on YouTube next. And one analogy that I used was, you know, like, I love the Avengers. The movie's fantastic. The latest one made $2 billion. But at the end of the day, what's going to have more of an emotional impact? The Avengers film or like Moonlight, you know, which one's going to last longer in the cultural zeitgeist and like which one wins the awards? I want to I want to make the stuff that might not get as many views, might not make as much money, but is important to people, hopefully. That's the stuff that I want to create. This episode of The Create Unknown is sponsored by Brilliant.org. One of the Vsauce 3 videos that Jake made that actually inspired Could You Survive the Movies was one he did about Home Alone. It was literally Could You Survive Home Alone, and he just went through the physics of like you know getting bashed in the face with a paint can you know and like what would actually happen or getting smashed with you know a crowbar there's quite a lot to that to figuring out what the impact would be on what a paint can half full swinging on a, on a rope uh what about when it's totally full a quarter full what's the difference when it hits you in the face yeah, or or empty i mean that's there's a tremendous <laughs> amount of variation uh, in the uh, the damage that it's going to do to, you know, your your Joe Pesci or your Daniel Stern face. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, the cool thing there is that almost all of that stuff is around you all the time. You can figure out the physics of the everyday, which at Brilliant.org, they have a course on physics of the everyday. All of these things that are happening in your home, weather systems, just uh, the physical science that is constantly a function, whether you're throwing a baseball to somebody or rigging up quite a few micro machines and Legos to trap an intruder. Yeah, and I mean, it's entertaining to watch on Vsauce 3, but it's also awesome to actually learn the concepts behind them by applying them, by using the courses that Brilliant.org have, which are interactive. And it really guides you through the process so that you come away with a greater understanding of what's going on. So if you want to check that out, you need to go to brilliant.org slash the create unknown. And the first 200 people that go to that link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription. The link is brilliant.org slash the create unknown. So if you want to learn about the physics of the everyday, then just go to brilliant.org slash the create unknown. 
Why do you think, and I don't have an answer to this, so um, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on it. Why does that gap exist? And why is it so wide between what an Avengers does and what a Moonlight does or, or you know, whatever the, the Oscar um, film is that really connects and, and maybe, you know, talks about a moment in time because I think that's what the Oscars try to do. When they choose the best picture, they're not really choosing the best picture. They're choosing the movie that represents that year, that, that the movie that represents like the moment in time that we're in. So that, like you said, decades down the road, we can look back and say, oh, like this is where we were culturally in 1979. And that's why this film, you know, represented that. Um, but the question is, why is that gap so tremendous between what people will come out in droves to support and what only like a select amount of people will respond to and embrace. Well, I mean, if we're still using Moonlight as your example, I mean, that's a very difficult film and it talks about difficult topics. Um, And it's also a very adult film. Something like The Avengers is, it's a popcorn movie and it's like a very good one. I mean, I love the movie, but it's a lot more accessible and approachable. Whereas films that deal with difficult topics or maybe are a little bit more serious or emotionally heavy. Well, maybe I don't want to deal with that right now. Like I don't want to go see that. Um, and that's always, I think a, a concern, something like Avengers is approachable to all audiences. Everyone likes fun and everyone likes action. Everyone like quirky jokes and stuff like that. And like really beautiful special effects. Moonlight's like a very serious, dramatic film. You know, it's, it's very difficult. And like you look at things like citizen Kane, when that movie came out, it did terribly. Um, and now it's regarded as like one of the best films ever made. And I think a lot of time these movies just take time to grow. You have to plant a seed and then eventually it'll hopefully turn into something. But it takes time. But I do think that the impact of it is long lasting. And again, this is me like maybe being arrogant or having too high of hopes. But I want to be able to create things that aren't like I'm never going to make anything on that level. But still something that like you don't forget about after you watching it. You know, I want to create an entree, not an appetizer. I want it to be something that fills you. And then when you tell your friends, like, oh, you have to try this dish. It's so good. And everyone's really satisfied by it. Something that both of you guys do really well, and obviously Michael as, as well, uh, is you have something that's important and entertaining. Okay. And so you're talking about some, uh, you know, cultural importance and really meaningful stuff. Well, you also need to get somebody to watch it. You know, you're explaining the difference between these two films, but what all three of you guys do, and people in the education space like Destin, he talked about some of this as well, uh, is you, you kind of bring the two together in a way that absolutely works. Uh, you close that rift where you're pre- presenting something of value, something that sticks around, even if it's just a feeling and makes somebody think, oh, I, I want to see more of this. They might not remember anything from that video, but they know that they want to watch, watch more. Uh, They do that because they're entertained and they've gotten something of value. And so we talk about this rift, but but you guys are actually closing that rift in your space. I definitely think that's part of the goal. Uh, I'm also just trying to work through this like Avengers versus uh, Oscar bait thing. And I'm, (laughs) and I'm, I'm wondering if it's general escapism where everyone can agree to to escape the troubles of their own personal lives versus being challenged by a piece of media and maybe that's 
the difference. Again, I haven't really thought about this before, so I'm just kind of like working it out right now in real time. But I'm wondering if that's what separates the two, being challenged versus escaping. I think that is true. I think movies are escapism. A lot of people, like a lot of times people don't want to go watch something that might parallel their life or like make them think about like the the horrors of reality or the the sadness of of life. So they go and watch The Avengers. They go and watch John Wick. Um, and those movies aren't bad, but they are just like fun things where you can escape for an hour and a half, two hours and not have to think about the real world for a while. Um, I mean, there's some movies that like I haven't watched yet because I'm like, oh, this is going to be really depressing and I don't feel like being sad right now. Like there's a, a mindset that I need to be in to watch that stuff. So so is the difference forgetting yourself versus thinking about yourself? I think it's partially that. I think a lot of people just want to be entertained for two hours um, and then go back to the real world. And actually to what Matt said, like that is, I think, a thing that we all try to do on Vsauce. Not even just us, but like all, or not all, but a lot of the educational channels is making things accessible to people and making it exciting where it is accidental learning. You know, I remember at VidCon a few years ago, I was at like the Marriott, just like eating lunch outside. And this guy came up to me and was like, oh, hey, like, I love your videos. I'm like, great. And then I started talking to him and this woman he was sitting with. And she was an academic at uh, like UCLA or something. She was a teacher there. And I kind of explained what I did. And I remember we kind of got in an argument where she was like, well, because I was like, well, I don't, I'm not a scientist. I just kind of take what other people have written, be it in scientific journals or these papers, these research papers, and present it in a way that's accessible to others. And she was like, well, why would you have to do that? Like, all the research is there. Blah, blah. And I kind of went, in my head, I'm just like, but here's the thing. The majority of people aren't just going and sitting down with a research paper and reading it. <laughs> no one's doing that unless they're interested in that field, you know? And I want to be able to take that information, because it is really exciting, but present it in a way that is approachable and digestible by a large audience. And I think that's what we all do. But that's just something that, that's very important to me because there is so much inf interesting information out there. But if it's presented in this very academic, jargony way, people aren't going to understand it and they're going to ignore it to a degree. Nor should they be expected to because those scientific papers are explicitly written so that they are as accurate mm -hmm. as possible within the confines of the discipline. So I don't know how this person that you spoke with expects someone who, you know, fixes cars for a living and never took a single chemistry class to all of a sudden like dive head first into some paper about um i don't know covalent bonds or well, <laughs> whatever it is yeah it's funny that you use that example because like i have a specific one within that where um i was this is a couple of years ago uh where i was reading about electroplating and there was a rift, there was a, there was a massive gap in the resources online between the people talking about uh, electroplating and also aging, aging chrome. Uh, this was to, you know, make uh, a guitar look maybe from the 60s or 70s, you know, how you can uh, use. So electroplating is the process by which you essentially coat the metal? Yeah, yeah. Right? And then how you can prematurely age it. Mm -hmm. You know, okay. and there are all sorts of neat things in this. Right. And so you have these people who are interested, you know, hobbyists like me, who, who it's like, oh, we can put some electricity in this liquid and see what happens to the chrome. Um, but a lot of those resources were exactly what you're saying. Highly technical. So they said exactly the right thing. Never the wrong thing. There was no bridge for, for us until, you know, you really, you know, got deep into it at that time. 
that took a while. You know, we're talking 2008 internet. So it's, it's not like I could just see a YouTube video. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there was a gap. Because and, people don't talk the way that scientific no. papers are written. And I think that's the big difference. There is were that, resources there. I could not access them because I was out of that community. Well, right. that's the thing, too, is like, you know, we and this is what I was trying to explain to this person is we want to get people excited, give them a taste for what this information is. And that's why we always link to the article or the paper in the description. So, like, if you are curious now and that's hopefully the what we do now, you can find out the full thing down below. But it's just getting people excited, getting people engaged. So back to like, could you try the movies? The whole point of that show is to appeal to a broad audience where it's like, maybe you love movies. Maybe you love just going on an adventure, but there's going to be information there and it's going to present it hopefully in a way that is exciting. And then you do feel like by the end you go, wow, that was a really great movie. And I also just learned something. I learned about like shockwaves and I learned about like heat transfer and whatever else we talk about. Um, the explosions part is awesome in there where you learn about what actually happens when a car explodes how does this affect your body because how many how many movies do we watch where that kind of thing happens and i've always kind of wondered about this and i was reading about uh explosions happening this was a few years ago uh in different places and the internal injuries uh, that couldn't even be diagnosed on the scene they couldn't be seen you know and then uh, an hour later somebody falls over and never gets up. Well, that's the kind of thing that you talked about really happening there. And I had a sense after that of what's actually going on in so many of these movie scenes. Well, the thing is never like, cause I don't ever want to, cause obviously movies are unrealistic cause their job is to be entertaining, but I, and I don't want to be like, I'm here to crush movies and make them make you realize how dumb they are. It's like, no, I love movies. I just think it's a really great jumping off point to learn about what would really happen. And that's kind of what the whole series, if it makes it that far, is about. Because um, I have so many other movies that I want to talk about. Like, one of my f- one I really want to do is Back to the Future. Because, you know, the movie starts with Marty walking into Doc's place. And there's that giant amplifier, like the whole entire wall. <laughs> yeah. So if he just, like, cranks it up to 11, hits a note, and then gets blown across the room. Well, great. Your body would be liquefied. You'd be dead. The movie would end immediately there. So that's how like, I want to start right. the episode is by like doing that. Then like, boom, and then I blow across the room and we actually like recreate it. And it wouldn't be me getting blown across the room because I would die. But like we do some recreation of it. And that's like how the episode starts. It's just with me being totally obliterated by a wall of speakers. And then we go back in time and like start the episode again um, by not doing that. But like that kind of stuff, I think, is just so fun and so exciting where we're poking fun at the movies, but also we're celebrating them for for being this beautiful works of art. Yeah, and I like the idea of going back to a movie of that era. Let's scrap the Back to the Future idea. I'm going to pitch this to you. I want to know if I can survive the greatest film ever made, which is Rocky IV. I want to know whether I can survive training in in a Russian winter up in the hills and whether I could survive getting punched in the face by Ivan Drago. So... Is Rocky Five the one with the robot? Or Rocky Four? Yeah, Rocky, Rocky Four. Okay, Rocky Five is the one with the kid that he starts training. Yes. Yeah, Tommy Gunn. Yeah, Tommy Gunn. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Rocky Four. Because in Rocky Three is when spoiler alert, Apollo Creed dies. No. That's about. That's two. No. no, no. That, that's four. That's, Ivan Drago kills. Oh, he kills him in four. Apollo Creed, and that's why he starts training. At the beginning. And then yeah. goes yeah, to that's fight when Rocky him. comes back. Yeah, to like get his revenge. Then what happens in two and three? He defeats Apollo in two because he loses in yeah. one. 
And then in three, for some reason, he boxes Clubber Lang, played by Mr. T, and also wrestles Thunderlips, played by Hulk. I didn't know we were going to get so deep into the Rockies, but <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he, yeah, he wrestles Hulk Hogan uh, for charity, uh, who goes by the name Thunderlips. Of course. And uh, that was like Hulk Hogan's big cultural mainstream coming out, was being in that, that movie. What was the... Hulk Hogan movie with him and Christopher Lloyd where Hulk Hogan is like a space warrior. Suburban Commando. Suburban Commando. I love Suburban Commando. Yeah. <laughs> that movie is so good. And then what was the other one? He was in Mr. Mr. Nanny or something? Or? Uh, the other one? Hulk Hogan has a, um, what is the word? Ouvre. What is the word? Ouvre. Uh, he has a, a deep catalog. Uh, yes, there was Mr. Nanny. Uh, there was No Holds Barred which has the uh, famous, famous, well, actually, it's not famous. I don't think anyone remember the, remembers <laughs> this other than me. Moment where he uh, threatens a man. He's trying to get information out of him. And all of a sudden, Hulk Hogan smells something. And he says, you know, what's that smell? And the guy goes, duty. <laughs> <laughs> that real, that's real. Uh, you can look. I hope that that's on YouTube. But um, <laughs> do you have these? Do you have all of these on VHS? Just burned into my mind, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta keep them up in the old hard drive, huh? Yeah. And Hulk Hogan was also in Gremlins too. Oh, Gremlins two is the new batch phenomenal. That's a phenomenal. <laughs> Actually, both Gremlins are great, but Gremlins well, Gremlins two. one is it's such an interesting film because I I strongly believe, and someone fact checked this, that Steven Spielberg directed the first half of that movie. And then Joe Dante was like, oh, wait, I'm supposed to direct it. Okay, here I go. And then it turns into like a cartoon, the second half. And that's Joe Dante. And then Joe Dante obviously directed the second one where the whole movie is a cartoon. So if you're choosing future editions of Can You Survive the Movies, would something like Gremlins be a candidate? Or like, how would you choose the sort of projects that you would analyze next? I think it just depends on what could I talk about. Gremlins, I would love to do. I don't know if there's enough there, really. Besides, like, the history of Gremlins. Um, but I can tell you, like, some of the ones that I pitched for the... If, if this goes to series, some of the episodes I pitched for the first season are things like uh, Back to the Future, Blade Runner, Indiana Jones, uh, Men in Black, because there's a new one coming out, Avengers, um, was the Fast and Furious, and, oh, Alien. Stuff like that. Stuff where there's actually, like, topics that I think I could talk about. Like Halloween, I really want to do a, a slasher-themed episode. I think it would be wonderful. Like, shoot it on 8mm. Um, so, I don't know. With that, you, all the things you, I want. You, could, um, you could get really deep into, like, pretty graphic stuff with the science of slashers. Because, I mean, especially, like, the Friday the 13th franchise, the entire purpose of those movies is the different kills. And, oh, yeah. Right? So, you could go through and say, like, could you actually, like, impale somebody you know, through a bed. Well, there's a bunch that I want, like, cause these, these killers like Michael Myers, not in the first movie, but like later on, as they become more of these supernatural things, they have just immense strength. So one thing I want to talk about is like, could you actually punch through a person? Could you do that? And like, one thing I also want to talk about is like blood splatter. Cause that tells you so much. You can like see blood splatter and determine if that was a knife wound, if that was a blunt object, if that was a gunshot. And like, we do these experiments, like shoot a gun at a, human body filled with blood bags be like okay what do these blood splatters tell us like go through all that stuff um and what is like the science of fear and also like how do they move so quickly yet walk so slow they always are walking yet they catch up to people immediately 
Um, because they always like, fall down this... in the woods and twist their ankle. <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh no, but they still move. So it's, I don't know. I, there's so much stuff I, I want to talk about that I think would be very interesting. Like how much damage can a human body take before it's just done? You know, in the first Halloween movie, Michael Myers gets shot out of a window and then they look back out the window and he's gone. Like, okay, could that actually be possible? You fall out a two-story window with like two gunshot wounds in your body. You're just going to be like walking it off. Um, <laughs> I don't know about the gunshot wounds, but Mike Birbiglia did a whole, uh, do you know this, the comedian Mike Birbiglia? So he has some sleep disorder where he like fell out of a two-story window while he was sleeping at some point. And he did a whole documentary talking about this. Must yeah. not have killed him. No, no, he's yeah. fine. So, so the if he had the gunshot wounds, that would have probably been a lot more painful and difficult to survive. But yeah, the resilience of, of the human body would be well people fall out of out of airplanes right and their parachutes don't open yeah and they somehow survive that which Uh i don't understand maybe yeah but that's not like a very common thing but it happens and that's the point like you shouldn't (laughs) fall out of an airplane and not open your parachute you shouldn't that's my disclaimer (laughs) no no one should don't invite strangers to your home to play xbox (laughs) mine is don't fall out of an airplane without opening your parachute to see what happens this came up for something vsauce related a month or two ago and i forget what it was i have i I can't recall at all uh but it was about the guy who uh, i think he was in a, a train explosion of some sort and a piece of uh rebar uh, some kind of spike went entirely through his head oh yeah i saw the x-rays of that uh, yeah yeah this was a seminal case in maybe 1870 or 1880 mm-hmm. something like that where he lived he was completely fine his personality changed a little bit and th- this was the seminal case of realizing medically that traumatic brain injury is a thing and and what the effects of that are 20 30 years later everybody knows what happens when you really get mashed up from the beginning but what about when you're okay how did his personality change just just a really grumpy because he has a bar sticking through his head <laughs> yeah i think that i think that over time he got he uh, had trouble walking through doors <laughs> <laughs> he, uh he lost patience with things he got angry quickly uh was generally unhappy uh but that was uh, yeah that makes sense yeah there's a, a bar effect. through his head right it, but anyway that kind of resilience like that's that's really fascinating and with all the crazy things that we see in movies the medical element like you're talking about uh, the forensics analysis of blood splatters. That's a certainly legitimate, real thing that happens in court cases every day. Uh, but seeing the way it's applied to movies, this is incredible. Like, I would, I would watch bad movies if I could just watch the analysis of those bad movies. Um, and when it comes to fighting, I really want to make, maybe in season two, if we even make it to season one, I really want to do a kung fu movie. Um, but, like, not like a classic kung fu. I want to do more like the raid style kung fu where it's like bone crushing non-stop action like not very many cuts where like you feel everything like that kind of stuff i really like and i think it's just so curious and interesting because a lot of times especially in those films like the raid those people are actually getting hit so i just think that's really interesting what sort of scientific elements of kung fu fascinate you like like how you can keep fighting for so long or how you can yeah just the amount of like energy it takes not only physical but mental i think the the impact that a fist can have if basically like thrown the correct way. Cause you just have these like boxers who just obviously go for force, but you can cause a lot of damage if you're just very specific about how you use it. I mean, that was the thing that Bruce Lee was always really good at, right? Um, he can move quickly. So the thing is like the faster you're kind of moving and the, the more hits you're throwing, 
it's not going to be as damaging as just one giant wound up punch, but you're doing it again and again and again and again and again, and you're like wearing it down. Right. Um, and it's that quick movement that can actually like snap a bone. Cause if you like light, if you not lightly, but if you like slowly apply force to a bone, it'll take longer to break. But if you can apply that same amount of force quickly to a bone, like the tensile strength, it'll just break it. Is this like a, like a frog in boiling water situation? <laughs> I just think it's something that we need to test. Yeah. We need to test who's going to punch and who's going to get punched. So that's like a, a thing I want to do. I don't know. I got a lot of ideas for things I want to do. I hope I get to make them. So YouTube, if you're listening, please pick up my show. I want to keep making them and I want to keep making them for free for people. So please, please help me. Help me, YouTube. You're my only hope. <laughs> Princess Roper <laughs> has made his final plea. Okay, look, I want to get into real quick Taco Bell. I want to get into this this kind of overall thing that you have that I don't know yeah. if people are aware of uh, your specific obsession with things. Okay, so yeah, I've known you for uh, several years now, and you always have like a few very specific obsessions. The first one that I don't know if most people know about that I knew about was chilies. Yeah, you were so obsessed with chilies. You had your a birthday party that like a big blowout birthday. Was it every so the year? restaurant, not like little chili peppers, the but restaurant like the chilies. franchise chilies. Yes. Yeah, I've had I've had a few birthdays there. And then I ended up um, I, when I got older, I started doing party buses where basically would pick my friends up in Brooklyn and we'd party bus around Brooklyn. Like we go to Coney Island, get a hot dog at Nathan's, get back in the bus, go to the Brooklyn Bridge and we just party in a bus. And I started having um, the bus take us to Chili's where we'd have a catered order. And we just bring all the chilies onto the bus. But I want to know how you choose these things. Cause, cause it was first, it was chilies. Uh, yeah. For years now, it's been Taco Bell. I, I think that, that every single time there's any sort of event that you have <laughs> an ability to have an influence on, you want to get a Taco Bell truck there. No matter, yes, no matter what it is, whether <laughs> it's like a celebration or it's like a funeral. It's like, <laughs> can we get a Taco Bell truck <laughs> at grandma's well, funeral? Well, if you think about it, like a, a a coffin is kind of like a crunch wrap. It's just good to go. <laughs> God, you put the meat in it. You it's just you're good to go. Um, so yeah, okay. Chilies and Taco Bell. I've loved ever since I was a kid. Chilies. I've kind of fallen out a little bit with um, the youth. They did sponsor the first ever Chilies Con that I helped create, uh, where we did a, a Chilies Con the day after San Diego Comic Con, and Chilies sponsored it. And it was just a bunch of us, and we went to every Chilies in San Diego. Um, How many was that? I think it was four or five and we had like appetizers at one entree at the other, then like dessert at the other one. And then just like drinks at the other one. Um, how many, but they all knew. So we'd show up. It was like five. It wasn't big. Five, yeah, I don't and think that's like, a con. <laughs> I think that's just, but we called it Chili's con. Cause I'd like made a joke about it. And then Chili's like DM me and was like, do you actually want to do this? I was like, heck yeah, I want to do this. If you call, um, if you call two or three people into the room behind you, we'll have podcast con. Apparently, <laughs> right. that's all it takes. <laughs> it's just five people for a convention. It starts out small. VidCon was very small when it first started. Um, <laughs> so anyway, when I was a kid growing up, I was raised vegetarian, and Taco Bell was really the only place I could go and eat food. Like I go to McDonald's, but I'd have French fries or something. Like at Taco Bell, you can get anything made with just beans, no meat. So I could eat at Taco Bell. So I always really appreciated Taco Bell. Like when my friends would be like, "Let's go get food," like, "Oh, let's go to Taco Bell because I can eat there." So that always held a special place. And you know, growing up. When I was like pretty young, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, so when we would go out to eat, it would be at like a Chili's. And that's why I always really appreciated Chili's because that to me was like where we would go out for a nice dinner. 
Um, you know, on the rare occasion that we went out to eat, it would be chilies because there was a lot of stuff that vegetarians could eat. Um, so that's kind of why I always both appreciated them. But chilies and I had a falling out because I used to have a show on my personal channel called Taco Time. Thank you for the name, Kevin. Um, <laughs> You're welcome. And then and Chili's knew this show existed. And then Chili's created their own talk show on their YouTube channel called Taco Talk. Oh. And I took that as an insult. Uh, so now I don't particularly support that's, Chili's as that's much. That's more than an insult. That's like legal action time where they're <laughs> infringing <laughs> on your IP. <laughs> so I, I've always been, I mean, I still like Chili's, but I've always now, I haven't had a soft spot for them as much. Um, now I'm more of a Red Lobster boy. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Because I so so Chili's and Taco Bell are directly connected to childhood sentimentality. So yeah. that makes sense. This is not a random thing. There there are like a good foundational reasons for you to be obsessed with these as an adult. And I just love uh, Mexican food, and I love Tex-Mex. So they both fit really well with me. What's the Red like, Lobster eat... thing though? Now you love Red Lobster. <laughs> Now, if like, because if you go to a place like in a in a parking lot, like a mall parking lot, there's usually like a Chili's and a Red Lobster or like a macaroni grill and an apple. Like there's always some variation of those things. So I'll sometimes go to Red Lobster because the biscuits there are just to die for. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you can. And when they have know, they like, sell them in the stores now, the mix. Uh, oh, yeah. But then so it makes good. me feel bad because I can see the nutritional value of them. Um, so I don't like to do that because I'm like, oh, my gosh. They're like 9,000 calories per dollar. As the ocean. Um <laughs> And it was always very, and I didn't like Red Lobster in Manhattan because there was only one in New York and it was in uh, Times Square. That one was disappointing because you had to pay to get the biscuits. They didn't give you the biscuits oh. for free. So that was always like a little difficult for me to, to get in line with. But I, I like uh, Crab Fest. It's nice. Like Michael and I will go there sometimes to see crab legs endlessly. This must be another um, thing. Yeah, yeah. Is it exclusively LA or is it just not in the East? I, I mean, I'm sh the East Coast probably has better crab legs, but then you're not going to Red Lobster for that. Oh, oh, so going to like Crab Fest. Oh, Crab Fest is part of Red Lobster. Yeah, you're yeah. talking. Yeah, okay, okay. No, I don't even know what it is either. Oh. So that's fine. That's fine. So Crab Fest is what? On it, yeah. It's like a, a one one day a week where it's crab legs no, are cheap. No, no, they're like, oh, it's Crab Fest, and you go there and like you get twenty bucks. It's like all these king crab legs. It's great. Yeah, they do like endless um, shrimp too, don't they? Don't they have those windows where it's all you can eat? wheelbarrows yeah. full of shrimp for 15.99 and they had a thing for a while that i really wanted to obtain which was they had the lobster of the week and that would be on their facebook page you like submit a photo of yourself at red lobster and uh they'll, they'll make you the lobster of the week i never got it i took a photo of me with two shrimp as a mustache i kind of looked like salvador dolly <laughs> um and it didn't make it I, I i didn't get made to be the lobster but i remember i, I went to red lobster only to become a, a lobster, and it never happened. So that's a, a dream that I have that one day will hopefully come to fruition. You only tried once, though. I mean, that's something you might want to be more persistent about. Yeah, it's just, you know, I, my, I, my hopes were so high, and I think the, the crushing weight of failure really got to me there. Now, did you um, caption it as, like, shrimp adore Dolly? <laughs> Maybe that's what I should have yeah. done. Yeah, <laughs> you have to involve a pun, and then yeah, you would have gotten really... picked. Okay, yeah. so that's the food stuff. What about Nicolas Cage and Jeff Goldblum? So you have a Jeff Goldblum shower curtain. Yes. And you have various Nicolas Cage pillows? <laughs> More than one, I right? own three Nicolas Cage pillows. They're all the same. It's always that like, sequin Nicolas Cage. Mm -hmm. I have those. I also have a, a bed pillow um, 
that a, a, like a body, his... like an anime body pillow of uh, Nicholas. Yeah, Cage. but it's just his face. Um, and then I have a bunch of T-shirts that are just his face. I love Nicholas Cage. So when I was a kid growing up, some of my favorite action films were Con Air. Um, and he wasn't in this one, but uh, but gosh, what was it? Oh gosh, I just forgot the name. Broken Arrow with Christian Slater and John Travolta. And also Face Off with Nicolas Cage, also Toronto Volta. So, like, I just always loved him. I thought he was, like, wild and wacky and, like, so exciting. And there's just something about his character that it was always appealing to me. Like, I remember when I went to New Orleans, um, <laughs> I've, like, he, he owns, like, a tomb there. And, like, I went and visited the tomb that he's going to be buried in. Um, like, I don't know. Really? He's just so weird. He, yeah. he owns a tomb that he will be buried in when he passes away? Mm-hmm. Is it is it huge? Is there like a bald eagle on top? Uh, a copy of the Constitution? <laughs> I mean, it's, like what? It's cool. Not a copy. The real thing. He stole the real Constitution. <laughs> a pyramid with the eye. Yeah, um, Illuminati symbols. Oh no, not the. It was well, yeah, the Declaration of Independence. Right, is what he stole. Um. So I just I don't know. I just always really loved Nicolas Cage. Like he's when I was a kid growing up, he was in some of my favorite movies, and I went through like a big David Lynch phase. So I, I loved him. Uh, even more than and because uh, he was in always, he was in Wild at Heart, yeah. So I don't know. I've just always really had this thing with him. Like I I just really appreciate him. I've always wanted to work with him. Uh, and also like he loves comics. I remember when he was going to be Superman. I still have a photo because I used to get this film magazine when Tim Burton was going to direct it. And they had a photo of him in costume, and I ripped it out and like put it on my wall. I was so excited for him to be Superman. Is there a Nick Cage role movie or anything? tangentially related to him that you could do for could you survive the movies i feel like he does so many films now that i could just get him for something i feel like if could you Survive the movies gets picked up i could just be like listen i'll give you 10 grand to be in this <laughs> oh so you just want literally him just in an episode yeah you could always piece That's it all together though and just be like could you survive being nicholas cage and you take you pluck elements out of so many of these movies you could you could absolutely I mean, do I a mosaic always... that worked one that I would always love to make, and it probably wouldn't be a face-off specific episode, but face-off has so much stuff. I watch face-off. I love face-off so much that I bought an HD DVD player because face-off was only available on HD DVD at the time. So I bought an HD DVD player so I could watch face-off at which, and then like a month those players later, must've been like $600. How much was the HD well, DVD H- player? I was betting on HD DVD because it was cheaper because it was the same. It used the same laser, the red laser, as a DVD player, whereas Blu-ray used a blue laser. Um, the discs had to be manufactured differently. So I always thought HD DVD was going to win. I think it was like 200 bucks. Um, so I bought that and I bought Face Off. That was the only, that's the only movie I owned on HD DVD. Do you still have both? No, I sold them on eBay for like $50. Um, <laughs> and that's where the loyalty ends. Now, now yeah. we know how much Nicolas Cage is worth to you. But I, I love, because Face Off, like, could you actually take a person's face off and put it on your own face? Um, they had that whole prison where like the entire floor was magnetic. How would that work? Um, there's always like that movie's so ridiculous. John Woo's like incredible with action, but there's people always jumping through the air shooting two guns at once. Would that actually work? They kind of make fun of it in Hot Fuzz. Like, could you do that? Um, there's always there's so many weird things in that movie, and I, it's such a brilliant film because like Nicolas Cage actually does a really good job of playing John Travolta as Nicolas Cage, and John Travolta does a great job playing Nicolas Cage as John Travolta. Like they do such an amazing job. I love that film. Uh, I remember seeing that in theaters when I was like, how old have I been? Like eight or nine. Um, It was great. How important is it that somebody is familiar with the topic on something like, can you survive the movies or 
even any of the Vsauce videos. So, you know, I'm 12 years old. Uh, oh, congratulations. I probably haven't seen. Yes. You look 30. I'm happy with 30. Um, really, though, 12 hasn't seen Face Off. How interested am I going to be in that? Maybe he's seen a classic, something like Back to the Future. That's going to be on a lot, whatever. But how important is it that somebody comes in to any of your videos? And this is both of you guys knowing something about it. Where can they come in 100% cold and really get it, really enjoy it? My hope is for the latter that like, even when I was making the Mad Max one, when I was writing the script, it was very important to me to make it so people who had seen the film would get some of the inside jokes or some of the references. But if you hadn't, you wouldn't feel left out. It should be something that anyone can watch, no matter if they've seen the film we're referencing or not. Which is why we, I took extra care in like explaining what certain things were. Like this is a blood bag. This is what a blood bag does in the Mad Max universe. This is gasoline. They spit gasoline into the engine. That's why they do it. It's also called guzzling. That it's the same as gasoline. Like trying to get everyone on board so no one feels left out. Obviously, there's going to be the initial thing where people might not click it. It's like, well, I haven't seen Mad Max, so I don't want to watch this. But the hope is that it's accessible to everybody, no matter if you've seen the the film that we're referencing or not. I mean, I, I was interested in the face-off thing. You had me at magnetic magnetic floors. Like, that sounds awesome. I, I would love to see you recreate that. There's a legitimate reason why I, I thought about the Rocky Four thing, because there's a scene where Ivan Drago is training. They're both training back and forth, right? And he punches a sensor, and it shows uh, this increasing force. Mm-hmm. And I remember it being something like 2450. And I don't know uh, if that's like, kilograms per you know square centimeter whatever the the conversion would be right uh that stuck with me when i'm five or six watching this this movie and then later on because it's a calculation of the impact yeah i'm seeing this this thing happen and i'm seeing a numerical value associated and i didn't know exactly what that meant but i kind of wanted to Mm-hmm. And then later on, you know, you're, years later, you're reading about things and it's, you know, wolves bite at 1800 right. pounds per square inch or something. It's like, oh, okay. So what actually happens with force in these movies and this and that? Yeah. Like, so I was goofing around on it, but at the same time, I, I'm really not. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that kind of stuff pops up in so many movies. I don't remember a movie other than Rocky Four though, where they had like a, a numerical va- value attached to some sort of violent act. Yeah. Okay, look, we defined Taco Bell, Chili's, and Nick Cage as being directly related to childhood bliss. Yep. What about Jeff Goldblum? Does that come specifically from his role in Jurassic Park? Because that would also align with little Jake Roper having like a happy moment. Mm-hmm. Watching Jurassic Park, right? He was my favorite character in Jurassic Park. I thought he was so cool. He was like, a, you know, this mathematician guy, but like he was wearing all black and he was like this cool guy. He was like, oh, ah, ooh, ah, ooh. I thought he was really interesting. And then I also, <laughs> I also, when I was a kid, watched The Fly uh, and I loved him in The Fly. I thought that movie was so good. And it's like one of the first movies I remember crying at the end of. Um, I thought he was so great in The Fly. And I always just really, really like Jeff Goldblum, and I'd like seek out anything that I could to watch him in. How how old were you when you watched that? Because that's a pretty horrific. I was film. probably like eight or nine. 
Because oh, I remember right. my, so my mom probably did some damage. Oh, I, a lot of damage happened to me as a kid. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> this is the result of letting kids watch the fly at eight. <laughs> I think so. Because my mom always would like do a line from the original fly. Um, the like 1950s one, I think it was 1960s. One of those, one of those times. Uh, I think it was early fifties. Yeah. Um, where it's like, help me, help me. When the flies stuck on like a spider web at the end or something. Um, yeah, she would always like do that voice. So I, I knew of the fly and I didn't realize that there was two of them. So I was Wait, like, why is your mom crying for help all the time? Oh, she would. No, it, was, it was like a joke she would do <laughs> where if I'd be like, if I don't know, like she would just like do it sometimes. I don't really know the context of it. Like she needs she needs help with the dishes. I don't know what it was. I think it'd be if I was complaining, then she'd be like, help me, help me. Um, Making fun of you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we've just tapped into the Freudian roots. Of yeah, all we're of getting this. deeper into the trauma. Um, so I, I loved. So I saw like the fly was on. Like I was looking at the TV guide and I was like, "Oh, the fly's on TNT." So I was like, "I gotta watch it." And that line never happens in that movie. And I was like, "This is so confusing to me." All I am is sad and depressed by the end of it. But that also then opened me up to David Cronenberg, who's like one of my favorite directors on the planet. And also, I had a huge crush on Gina Davis. Like when she was in a league of their own, I was like, yeah, I want to be in that league. Did you know that she's a fantastic archer? Yeah. It was in my alumni magazine because uh, she went to Boston University and studied theater there. Right. Or, I think it was theater performing arts. Uh, but yeah, a couple Olympics ago, she tried to qualify in archery and finished something like 14th in the trials. I mean, it was a really good, respectable finish. Isn't she in Mensa, too? I think so. Yeah. So Gina Davis is like the most amazing person. She's yes, dope. Pretty close. Yeah. Um, and she does a lot of activism and stuff now. And she's also one of my mm-hmm. other favorite films, uh, Last Kiss Goodnight, which is a fantastic action film by Rennie Harlan back when he made good films. Is that with Samuel L. Jackson? Yeah. Samuel Jackson, Gina Davis, Rennie Harlan um, directed it. And I think he was also married to Gina Davis at the time because he also made the film Pirate or, oh gosh, what was it? Some terrible like pirate film. Cutthroat Island. Cutthroat was Island. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 He made that terrible one. With Gina Davis. Um, and he also did like Die Hard 2. Uh, I think he did Deep Blue Sea, which is also one of my favorites. Deep Blue Sea. That's another Samuel Jackson. Yeah. Thomas Jane, uh, Samuel he, Jackson. He, uh, LL Cool J, I believe. LL Cool J is in it. And that's actually one of my favorite. I remember seeing that in theaters. I was like in fifth grade. And there's a scene in the movie that I won't spoil, but there's a scene that's very unexpected. And it blew my mind. You don't mind. want to spoil Deep Blue Sea. No, it's, <laughs> it's a like, great film. I, I think the statute of limitations has run out on that. <laughs> I don't like okay, spoiling you know movies. What? Okay. If you can go to a gas station and buy it in the bin next to where you're <laughs> checking out, okay, then it's fair game. You can never spoil anything in that bin. You don't even have to buy it in the bin. They just give it to you with a pack of gum. <laughs> I had that soundtrack only for the LO Cool J song where he's like, Deep Blue, my head is like a shark's fin. He's like, yeah, it is. <laughs> Well, yeah, I really dug well. deep for those lyrics. <laughs> I'll take a black coffee, some Paul Malls, and a, and a copy of Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Deep Blue Sea is fantastic. Highly recommend it. What a great film. Uh, so, so good. But anyway, when that scene happened, I was like, oh, wow, like that, it messed with my expectations. And I was like, this is wonderful. I love that stuff. This scene that you won't spoil. No, I won't spoil. So there's a, a surprising scene in that film. Yeah, that's that, that surprised so you. So good. Ugh. That's the story. It's so good. That's a great. That's a great story. Like monster movies, I'll be there opening day. I love monster <laughs> movies. Doesn't matter. Snakes on a plane, dressed up like a snake, went there to the midnight showing. You did? Oh yeah. How do you dress up like a snake? 
Well, we had this joke because we would dress up for midnight movies in high school. Like we went and saw Pirates, the Caribbean, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings, Matrix, all this stuff. And uh, so we reused a costume for our Pirates one where uh, the second movie, one of our friends just taped a bunch of snakes to his face so he could be like Davy Jones, (laughs) (laughs) like rubber snakes. So uh, we called him Snake Beard and then we all went to Snake Beard for snakes on a plane. So you all taped snakes to your face? Yeah. Where'd you get those snakes? Ah, just from like a Toys R Us or something. Oh, there's like little rubber, rubber snakes. <laughs> Snake beard. Look, I think that is a great place to stop. Listen, Jake, uh, <laughs> this, <laughs> this podcast is a celebration and, and an honoring of creativity. So I like to end the podcast by making you show off your endless wealth of creativity. So I'm going to ask you a question. Oh, good thing I'm starving to death because I'm my brain is ready. <laughs> okay, well, you can have some pineapple after you answer this question, but you have to make up the answer because there isn't a real one. Okay. Okay. So the question is, there is a, uh, there was a video game created by Nintendo that came out before Super Mario Brothers that never saw the light of day for some reason. Why, I want you to tell me what that game was and uh, why we never got to play it. Um, so you might not know this, but before Super Mario came out, Nintendo released a, a, a weird title. It was only available in Japan and it was called a uh, off face <laughs> and an off face. The, the point of the game was to take your face off and then apply it to somebody else's face and then wear their face as your face. But what made it difficult is that you had to be very still. It was kind of like operation. If you hit outside of the little area that you could, it, it zapped. And actually, this is actually another rare thing. I know that with the N64s, when they came up with the Rumble Pack, specifically with Star Fox, uh, but they actually had a Rumble controller that they tried doing back in Japan. Uh, you know, because they had like the Famicom, like all these weird different things that were only Japan-oriented. So it would actually like shake and actually shock you if you did it too much. And I remember being a kid playing this game, and I had just washed my hands. Uh, <laughs> And I was holding the controller and it shocked me. And I actually, I didn't get electrocuted because I'd be dead, but I did get shocked and it zapped the whole system. And my parents were very upset because as I said before, we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, And then my dad had to get a second job so he could afford to get me another Nintendo. And by the time I got another one, we couldn't find that game anymore because obviously I destroyed it. But anyway, so it's called Off Face and you had to take a person's face off. I don't know why they just didn't call it Face Off, Uh, but it was really interesting. And I think actually that was the inspiration for the film Face Off. And uh, the reason it was pulled from shelves was because it was electrocuting people? Yeah, and that's actually why they pulled the Rumble controller as well. And they didn't bring it back until uh, Star Fox with the N64. And they figured out the logistics of <laughs> not electrocuting children. And actually, on a real note, I don't know if you remember this, but I used to get like, I don't know if it was a Nintendo magazine or whatever Nintendo it was. Power. But I got like a, yeah, I got like a VHS in the mail one day. And it was just like this 30 minute short film for Star Fox. And like these guys like kidnap a dude who works at Nintendo and they're like, show us off what's happening in Star Fox. And they're like, oh my gosh, a rumble pack. This is amazing. It was like this 30 minute film about kid- these two guys who kidnap someone who works for a Nintendo. And then like he shows them Star Fox. Do you still have the tape? No. It's one of those things that I lost. There was also another. Sorry, I know what I'm going on. You, t- you said it was over, but I'm just ki- never going. There's another VHS. Again, when I was a kid, we didn't have much money. But there was a VHS that you could rent from Blockbuster for free, and it was called Cartoon All-Stars. And after a doctor's appointment or a dentist appointment, my mom would always take me to Blockbuster, 
and we'd rent Cartoon All-Stars because it didn't cost any money. And it was basically like an hour-long drug PSA. But it was all your favorite cartoon characters. The Ninja Turtles, Garfield, um, who else was in there? Like, I think Bugs Bunny was in there. You had like all these different cartoon characters, and it was all about the story of this kid who gets addicted to drugs. He starts with weed, and then he starts doing like meth and all this other stuff. Uh, and the cartoon characters are there to like save him. I think I remember this. This was free, though. I think I just saw it on television. Oh, it was a free rental at, at video stores. Did uh, That's not even something that I remember. Did they have a bunch of free stuff? I, I know this one because it was like paid for by like the government somehow. Like it was like a, a drug PSA and you could just rent it. And I just loved it. I didn't care about the drug part because I loved drugs when I was seven. <laughs> um, but I just like, like, it was all my favorite cartoon characters and they were like together. And I was like, this is wild. And I think like the Muppet babies were there. And I was like, this is amazing. Uh, Cause I didn't have cable television growing up. So I couldn't watch like cartoons. They didn't have Nickelodeon or any of that stuff. Uh, so that was like my way to get into watching cartoons. And I was so stoked and it was free so we could rent it whenever we wanted. So no meat, no TV, free government VHS cartoon tapes. <laughs> Propaganda. And that's how you create Jake Roper. <laughs> Jake, thank you very much for joining us on the Create Unknown. Yeah. And um, we'll talk again soon. I love you both. Well, yeah, we're gonna, we work together, so we're going to probably talk to you later today. Uh, probably. <laughs> probably right after we stop recording. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I love All you right, guys. Thanks, Jake. Thank you. You didn't say I love you back. That's fine. Bye. <laughs> we love you. We love you, Jake. Help me. Help me. <laughs> <laughs> love you, Mom. <laughs>actually comes from um, a person who makes ropes. If you ever run into Jake, just uh, call him ropes. If you want to see Jake online, then you need to go to YouTube and check out Vsauce 3 and especially watch Could You Survive the Movies? The show is amazing. Uh, You should definitely support it and share it and watch it over and over and over again like you do when you listen to Despacito. I know that that's you. Refreshing Despacito. We've also got more info down in the show notes. And thanks for listening to The Create Unknown. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend about the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. Those reviews really help out. If you haven't already, subscribe to The Create Unknown for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast app. You can follow the show on Facebook and Instagram at The Create Unknown and on Twitter at just Create Unknown. Also, the website is thecreateunknown.com. The Create Unknown is a Vsauce production in association with Triangle Content. We've been your hosts, Kevin Lieber and Matt Tabor. Check us out over on YouTube at Vsauce2. Or on Twitter. We both like to do tweets. Our executive producer is Dave Kiney. This episode was edited by Adam Ganong. Our theme song is from the incredible Mega Drive. Check out Mega Drive's website in the show notes. Host and guest portraits by the outstanding Tim Webster. His portfolio and website are in the show notes too. Special thanks to Dorothy Kiney and Paula Lieber. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. Until then, you are about to exit the unknown. And as always, thanks for listening.